Welcome to Friday PM, everyone. So wonderful to have you here on the second part of our Vine Song history. It is incredibly humbling to stand here and introduce what many years have passed, 40 years this year, to see the journey that took one man and his preparation for what God destined him to be even today and where we are as reapers of the harvest that he planted all those years ago. So sit back and relax. If you haven't seen the first episode or the first part of this history, please have a look because we're starting straight away where John was confronted to return back to God after many years of perhaps just uh, uh, following the world for a while and coming back and realizing the Lord had called him to something greater than he thought. And uh, we're right at a poignant stage where he was standing in front of his worldly friends and telling them about Jesus. So anointed. And uh, I invite you to watch with us this next episode of an eight-part series of the history of Vinesong. God bless you. I had to steady myself on the, on the cupboard and I said, I can't stand in front of all of you and present a weak crack in the foundation that God has given us because you're all so clever, you'll slip through that crack and I won't see you for eternity. So I have to stand here today and tell you that Jesus is real and he has a real plan for our lives and he's become real to me. So because this is not open for debate, I'm going to leave the room and you can talk about it as much as you like. And I turned around to walk to the door to go out and it seemed like a million miles away because they were all staring at me. And in the silence, I walked outside. I got in my car and I got on the motorway along the coastal road and I was going fast. I'd kind of blocked my mind from what had just happened. And I looked at the sea and I thought, oh, it can't be possible. Looked at the trees and then uh, I'm going to sound like my mother. So the sea has never been that blue. The trees have never been this green. And I panicked because I, did, I saw I was hardly going at all. And I looked to see if there were cars behind. And there were no cars, so I just pulled off the road and let the car coast to a standstill. And uh, I took my first breath and I said, God, what is this? And he said, it's my peace. He said, you have found me. And that's my voice. When you have no peace, you're, you're doing something that has disturbed our relationship. So you want to come back to me? find my peace. And the adventure of my journey began there because I didn't want to go home. Right. I found my secretary and I said, Barbara, find me a house. 
So she got cracking and she found a small little uh, townhouse and I went to look at it the next day and uh, I think I went to a hotel that night. Next day I saw it and I said, it's perfect, I moved straight in. And uh, by this stage I was asked to be on the board of elders in the church because I've been going for a long time. Mm. And uh, they asked me to have a Bible study, like a home group. Mm. And I couldn't fit all the people in, you know, the small place. I'd have to line them up around the wall everywhere. People got baptized in the Holy Spirit without even laying hands on them. Mm. And um, one day I said to God, if I am in your will, then surely the story of my life should lead to the salvation of people around me. Mm. The punctuation marks in my story should be the salvation of people. Mm. And uh, so am I living in the right place? There were about 14 townhouses. And I said, will you save all these people to show me? And he said, well, pray for them. And I began to pray for each lot. And I started with the number one. And within two weeks, she was in our church, born again. And then slowly, all of them came to know Jesus. And the guy that lived above me, his turn came, but he was never home, boy, because the devil knew I was out to get him. And uh, I woke up really early one morning, knocked on his door, first thing I saw across his room was a guitar and he came just with his sort of shorts on and he was had a heavy night and he said his name was Gary and he invited me in and I sat on a beanbag and I said, Gary, we're doing a musical at our church. Do you want to come to one of the practices? I see you play guitar. And just listen. He said, is this a church with Jesus in it? So I said, yes. And he started to cry. He said, that morning at about four o'clock, he got up to pour himself another drink. And he said, God, if you don't send help, I'm going to become an alcoholic. Mm. And uh, I invited him to our old years church service. And... Uh, he said, yes, he was coming. And while I was standing outside telling him that he must be down there by 11.30, otherwise he, he won't get a seat, a car reversed right up to our legs. Boom. And was a friend of his. And he opened his trunk. And there was just ice and alcohol and beers and fruit and cheese. Right there, he said, Gary... You're coming with me, aren't you? This is for the party. And Gary looked at that and he looked at me and he said, sorry, John, this is an offer I can't refuse. And I was so disappointed. And I remember playing in the worship team that night thinking what a tragedy he could have been here. It was about a quarter to 12 already. And I looked at the down the aisle at the entrance and he came walking and shaking and he started to cry. It was a quite a 
quite, had quite an effect on me. Mm. And uh, he gave his life to the Lord, came to the front. Wow. And I said, Gary, what happened? He said, you know what? I went on the motorway and there was only one more off-ramp and then I would have missed my chance to do a U-turn and come back. I was going to, I was fighting it. And he said, my temperature gauge shot to the red and down, red and down. He said, I wouldn't stop doing that. And he said, I became afraid because I knew that was not natural. And he said, with all the strength I had, I just pulled the wheel down and went off the last ramp. Mm. And I came around and came speeding down to the church. He eventually became a worship leader and a pastor. Wow. And his brother was the managing director of the big steel company for South Africa with many people under him. And he and I led his brother to the Lord, who also became a pastor. But all the people in my block of flats came to the Lord, mm. wanted more of Jesus. Yeah. And so we decided to go and rent a posh place near the university. All right. And we all stayed together. We had a cook. And every night we had a visitor. Each one of us were able to invite someone to be at dinner. Wow. And so we led a lot of people to the Lord. Mm -hmm. And it became a very exciting place to live and a lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. And then my church said, we want to leave we want to begin a church in London. Let me just ask before we come on to your overseas work, when was the moment you sort of sensed that God had a divine calling on your own life to be a minister? Was, was that a dramatic moment or was that a, a, a period of time where, where it grew upon you, this calling that you've now been living for many, many decades? I think everyone came to me and said, you know, God's got a special plan for your life. I remember walking in my apartment one day and I heard my name called, John. And I was living alone. And I eventually said, say, God, that was you that called me. Mm. I never heard my name said like that before or after. Just once and it was the Lord who called me. Mm. And I realized that he had called me. And uh, then, of course, when the church said they wanted a team and uh, my pastor asked me if I would head the team up. And were, were your family surprised, your parents surprised, your brother surprised? Or? Well, my mother, this might help other people who are listening. Mm -hmm. My mother used to have pity parties. Mm. They'd kind of whine to their friends, oh, we know God's got a plan for John. We wish he would serve the Lord. And someone said to them, stop. You've asked. Now thank. Mm. And when my parents started praising the Lord for what they couldn't see, they got a letter from me two weeks later to say, I've given my life completely to the Lord and I'm in this church. And I said, Dad, this church will bring revival to South Africa and I know that you're going to be an elder in this church one day. And um, it happened. Wow. That that church did bring revival to South Africa 
many people, including Ray McCauley, they all were led to the Lord through basically that church. And uh, my dad was an elder there. And when I came to leave, I closed my business. Mm. And my team were with me and my mom and dad were at the airport. They were so happy really? to say Lovely. goodbye to me. You know? <laughs> well, to have and, a missionary son is a... Yeah, yeah, I was. Never wanting to be a missionary. Okay. And the last thing I wanted to do, but yeah, I was. Became a missionary. And so that's a big part of that chapter. Yeah. Now, John, you'd been traveling. You'd already been to England and to Europe. Um, but then you went back to England now uh, with a missionary calling to start a church. Tell us about that. Yes. So I arrived in London and uh, one of the team members had, uh, he was British and he started having quite a lot of contact with the Church of England. And they offered us a house in the, in the country, in a very posh suburb mm. called Hadley Wood. Mm near Barnet, and it was just one road of mansions. And there was a Church of England, but there was also a house called Glebe House. You know, Glebe means comes with the job mm. for vicars, a big, like, vicarage or whatever. But this was like a little village with other houses. And they gave it to us to use. Rather than have squatters move in, we had about 32 people. And eventually, the lady that had been my secretary in South Africa came as part of the team. Her name is Juliet. Uh, she was Juliet Middleton. She's a cousin to... Princess Kate. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh, she said to me, we must start home group church because mm. I'm waiting, you know, for in my dreams all these crowds of people. I got pressure from South Africa. How big is your church, you know? It was a terrible pressure. So I just started a low-key Bible study and uh, we used to sing and teach and it was the church. It started to grow. And the Lord said that once a month I must have a lunch and I invited all the vicars and the nuns and uh, to to come. And I had two table tennis tables together, this big dining room, and with lovely times. And uh, during that time, Jackie Pullinger uh, was had written Chase, Chasing the Dragon. Chasing the Dragon, yeah. And... She came to our house because one of our team members and her husband were in the music group that we'd started and they were trying to get a secular contract with crossover words but not radically crossover and uh, her mother and father were part of the Society of Stephen in Hong Kong. Mm. And they brought Jackie over. And our keyboard guy, who is my, who has been Vine Song's arranger and producer, uh, he, his wife 
typed the entire script for Chasing the Dragon in our house. Is that right? And um, then I would have, I had a barbecue one day for everyone and it snowed in the morning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we had the barbecue in the afternoon and our band were playing in the tent on the side and uh, record companies were very interested in them. Called the band Hadley Wood, and uh, they came out, and uh, the pastor from South Africa eventually came, and he scrapped the whole thing. Said it had to be totally black and white, no crossover songs, and uh, was very disappointing for that team of people because we had practiced so hard day after day in the studio behind the house. But anyway, Jean Donnell arrived in England. I was in Courtfield Garden at St. Jude's Church of England, a big church, and the, the vicar was Pastor uh, Brown. He offered me the use of the church. He didn't feel threatened. I've got photographs of him praying with me for people. So you were hiring that building he for was a, a lovely service. man. Well, they just use it. Yeah. And so we all trekked down to London for our church and it started to really grow. Jean O'Neill was, came to do her crusade in that church mm. and it was called The Way of Jesus Christ. Mm. And she asked me if I would write her song for her campaign. Mm. And every verse started with, with the, the way of Jesus Christ leads back to where we belong. And uh, it was a great song. And that was basically one of my first songs I wrote. Okay. Never thinking there's more to come later. Mm. Mm. And so, uh, you know, Jean Donnell was a great lady. Mm. And uh, her story was that when she arrived, she would be nervous and look out of her hotel window and she'd see a red sign flashing and said, take courage, take courage. She didn't know it was an advertisement for beer. Right. <laughs> right. But she said, God used it so much to That's encourage right. The Lord can speak through a donkey a beer commercial. <laughs> take courage. And uh, anyway, I started to do kind of a naughty thing. I started taking the grass out of my hand as a shepherd and putting it in my other hand to feed the sheep to get them used to the fact that the pastor was coming from South Africa. It was a little indoctrination really so that when he arrived they would accept him. But some of the more discerning people knew what I was doing and they weren't happy. They said, you're the pastor of this church. You started it and let God decide who's going to lead it. Anyway, when he arrived from South Africa, we got a house for him in Welland Garden City. He had a car and a salary. And I'd worked myself way out of a job. Right. <laughs> and he took on the... He took on and basically I felt very uncomfortable Mm. being there. Mm. 
So uh, he said, why don't you go to Europe for a holiday? Mm. So one of the brothers lent me his sports car and I took one of my neighbours from that got born again from those townhouses in Durban. Mm. She became a full-time housekeeper and missionary. Mm. She had a daughter in Germany, so she said, can I get a lift from you? So I thought, well, that's great. She can be company for me. And we went first to Holland. And as we drove over the canals in Amsterdam, I felt that's where God wanted me to come back to. Wow, wow. And uh, so when I was finished my holiday, went to my friend in Switzerland, had a great time, came back to England, and the pastor said, did God show you anything? And I said, yes, that I should come back to Holland. And he said, why don't you select a team? And the Lord told me to take the weakest people in the church. And uh, it's a massive, massive chapter mm. uh, there because no one was starting churches in, the, in 1977 now by this stage. And um, so we packed up and we went to Amsterdam and we stood at Amsterdam Station and the team looked at me and they said, so where to now? <laughs> and I went, uh, and I saw a hotel sign in the distance. I said, we'll go to that hotel. So we went there. It wasn't too cheap and not too expensive. But at least we checked in. And then I said, God, please help me. Because in South Africa, when I was in business, a friend of mine, started a restaurant, an upper-class uh, pancake restaurant. And I would go on a Friday and Saturday and sell the menu. I'd take the orders from the people, hand it to the kitchen, and then basically go home after that or have a meal with them and go home knowing that I'd oversold more than people could eat because the secret was to sell the fondue, fruit fondue in the beginning as well before they even touched their fruit because it was quite expensive. So he loved me to come because it really helped him to uh, be successful. But I'd heard that he'd sold up and gone to Amsterdam to start a restaurant. So I tried phoning him and some uncle or someone told me, they said Peter had started the restaurant, decorated it and was it was going to have cabaret artists and everything and he'd brought all these people from France and the mafia had threatened him because it was heavy drug area too, but upper class. And they said to him, we don't want you here because he wasn't mafia controlled. And they threatened him and he brought all these people over to Amsterdam, all signed on a contract. And in order to find cheap accommodation, he found a house strategically near where he could get all 
three or four floors with enough rooms and put moved beds, new uh, sheets and blankets and cutlery and got it all ready for this this cabaret where they would stay and then just work there and sleep, you know. And about three days or four days before they're going to officially open the place, the mafia burnt it down. Peter told the whole cabaret team, probably paid them all a little and said, get out of town, we don't mm. need you. Mm. Your job's gone. Mm. And so I tried to get hold of Peter to find out what that house was called. That maybe it's still for rent. Mm. And they said that he was out of town. And uh, eventually I, I spoke to him and he said, don't mention my name because the man will never give it to you. But it is available and he told me where to find this man. And I, we were living in the country by this with a, a girl and her mother. And I caught the train and, and I walked to this man's house and he wasn't there. There was mail lying out of the box on the street, everything. And you'd see he'd been gone a long time and I was so downhearted. I walked away and as I walked down the street, I heard someone shouting and it was the man just come home. He just parked his car and seen me at his house. So I went to see him and I said, I believe you've got this house. And there was a situation. And uh, so I had to be very distant from my contact, Peter. And the man said he would take me and show me. He took me to show me and it was quite expensive, but he let us have it straight away. Mm. And we worked out that if my team all went to work in their different jobs like hotels and cleaning rooms and stuff, they would all bring money. It could cover the rent. Mm. And when we moved in, there were beds, enough beds and brand new blankets and pillows. There was even enough food, on canned food, for our first meal. And it was just a great place to live. And we were on one of the most famous corners of the red light district of Amsterdam. And that's where God wanted us to start a church. Wow. And, uh, and of course, I had to play the guitar because we had no music. And I always tell people, if you want to find out how not to play a guitar, watch me. Because I detune it and I can play chords and hate every minute. But I promised the Lord I would be faithful. And after a few weeks, I had about five guitarists. Really? And someone had donated a Hammond organ. And we used to have great meetings. Mm. And I had two, two nursing sisters from London. One, They both came out for, to have a Christmas with us. We were all having one of those lovely prayer meetings, singing and rejoicing. And the one girl was slain in the spirit. And I told everyone to open the window because I thought she was, uh, it was the heat. 
So open the windows, give her a wet cloth. We didn't know people got, could get slain in the Spirit, but it was the presence of the Holy Spirit. And she opened her eyes and she said to me, John, it's the Holy Spirit. And then I realized this was something new. Mm. We started seeing real presence of God. And, mm. um, and then uh, many things happened in my mm. time mm. In, uh, in Holland. In the next episode of Friday PM. I eventually went to California. Andre picked me up from the station and he uh, from the airport. He never did that because he's always at the airport. So you can't drag him there mm. at all. And he drove me around and, with, and within 24 hours he was saying, can you stand be a part of my ministry? Wow. That grew so big that Andre became afraid that the police would uh, get us into trouble because the cars were parked all the way down the road. Mm-hmm. And one day, Andre's manager, David Del Sesto, passed me between the kitchen and the studio, and he stopped. He said, you're going to have your own ministry one day. Mm-hmm.